you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. Happy Mother's Day again, again, again to all of our incredible moms here. Before we get started in today's message, I wanted to have a quick word to the incredible women of Zion City Church. Today is a different day for every family. For some families, today is just a day to eat a lot of food, take a good afternoon nap, and spend some time with mom, right? But for some, today is a difficult day, and we want to sit with every single kind of person who experiences Mother's Day differently in every story that there is. To those who this year have given birth to their first child, congratulations. And I can say on behalf of all the moms, welcome to the struggle, you know. To moms who've lost a child, we want to say we mourn with you and we sit with you during this time. To the mothers who are in the trenches with toddlers, we appreciate you very much. To those who are journeying down the difficult path of infertility, we want you to know that we are with you. To spiritual mothers, mentors, and those who have taken kids who aren't their own and raised them as if they were, thank you. We need you. To those who have complicated or severed relationships with their kids, and today is a reminder of those relationships, we want you to know that we sit with you. To those who have wonderful and flourishing relationships with their kids and your grandkids, today we rejoice with you. To those who have experienced loss through miscarriage or failed adoptions, we mourn with you. To those who are pregnant, we joyfully anticipate new life with you. To those who are empty nesters, we rejoice with you. And we also mourn the end of a season with you. May you have rest. To those who are single, longing to be a mother, we wait expectantly with you. And to all mothers, every story, every walk of life, today we honor you. Thank you for all that you do, sincerely, from us here at Zion. Today is a day where each of us begin to reflect on our lives and the incredible women who have helped us get to where we are. Whether it is our biological mother, a spiritual mother, a mentor, a grandparent, whoever it is, we realize that today we did not get where we are alone. Today I know well that I stand on the shoulders of the women in my life who loved me, believed in me, and prayed for me. Long before Zion was ever even a dream in my heart, me walking with the Lord was the prayer of incredible women in my life. As I reflect on uh, my story and as you reflect on yours, I believe that you will begin to realize the same thing, that today you stand on their shoulders, their sacrifices, and their prayers, also their love. I thank God for the amazing, strong, and wonderful women God has placed in my life and the ones that he has planted here in this church, which brings me to what I want to talk about today. I want to lay before our church this morning a vision for women in ministry here at Zion City Church. I want you to know that the way that our service is going this morning, it doesn't happen by accident. That even today, we stand on the shoulders of incredible women in our church who make this reality possible. The women who come every every Sunday morning and intercede in our pre-gathering prayer. The women who set up and stay late, raising up a generation of passionate Jesus followers in Ninos. The women who run our social media, who invest in the lives of people, who work in administrative roles. All over our church, it is marked by incredible women who help make this possible. And this is the story of our church. We are so blessed to have these incredible women. But if I can be honest, the church has had a complicated history with women and where they fit in the role of the church. And so here's my goal today, brothers and sisters. I simply want to awaken the imagination of the women in our church to step into all that God has for them 
And for us men, I want to encourage us to embolden and empower the women that God has placed in our lives for them to step into all that God has for them. Now, the conversation that we're going to have today is one that has a long history and many disputes about where women fit in the roles of the church, specifically when it comes to teaching, preaching, and leading. This conversation is primarily an in-house conversation, meaning this is a family conversation for followers of Jesus. Most of our messages are also geared towards those who are outside the house, but today's message is going to be geared to specifically the house of followers of Jesus. Now, today's conversation has incredible ramifications for the church in terms of theology, hermeneutics, and the future of the church. And my goal today, again, is to awaken the imagination of the women in our church to step into all that God has for them and encourage them in to embolden and empower the women in their life to say yes to what God wants to do through them. How are we going to do that? First, we're going to lay a groundwork. We're going to lay some important key ideas that are going to help us uh, have a conversation around this. Second, we're going to talk about God's design for men and women. Next, we're going to do a biblical survey. We're going to do a brief survey through the scriptures and see how God used women in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to address the controversial passages which are already looming in your mind if you've been in the church for some time. And lastly, we're going to lay a vision for what our church could be. So disclaimer, I'm going to talk faster than usual probably today. Um, and it's going to be more of a lecture than a sermon. So if you've got to get an extra cup of coffee or something like that, hang in there with me. I'll try to keep things light on our feet. But this is an incredibly important conversation for us to have as a church and fundamental to who we are. Are you ready? Okay, six of you are ready. Three of you are like, I shouldn't have come today. I knew it. Are you ready? Yes, go. Sweet. So groundwork. There are traditionally two camps when it comes to this conversation, two theological camps. Um, I have a little thing here. First is complementarians, and next is egalitarians. If you really want to impress somebody at lunch, write this word down, put it in your pocket, bring it out later. So what are your thoughts on complementarianism or whatever, right? So these are the two key ideas. Complementarians essentially believe this, that both genders are equal in God's eyes, but are created different. Each sex is, diff is meant to complement each other. Each gender has different roles that they function under. That's kind of a broad general term. Egalitarians believe both genders are equal in God's eyes and equal in their ability to fulfill any office, any role, and any function in the church. Now, these are traditionally the two categories that people use. However, I don't like these categories. I feel that they're very restricting. It's like trying to sum up your whole political belief right into one simple thing or your whole idea around economics or whatever it is into one concise idea. It's not. There's no nuance. There's no conversation to be had there, and it creates for more division, in my opinion. So I find these categories unhelpful. And so what makes it unhelpful even more so is that on both sides, there are extremes, right? So on the complementarian side of things, there are some well-known voices who have published a lot of books and had a big influence specific on the church in America who go as far as say, not only in the church, but in every sphere of life are women to be subordinate to men. That women aren't to be bosses or to have male employees or to even serve in the military as a commanding officer and have direct supervision over men. They take that to be that extreme. The egalitarian extremes sometimes go as far as saying that gender is this tool of oppression and we should throw off the chains of gender and move towards a genderless society. You see why these have conflict. You see why it's difficult to want to assign yourself with any of these camps. And this is why I find these camps, these camps incredibly unhelpful because I do not want to be looped in with the extremes of a camp that you find yourself leaning towards based on the text. And so for us to get a full comprehension of God's intention for how men and women are to live in harmony with each other, we're going to go back to creation. Before we do so, there's two basic rules on hermeneutics we need to come to an agreement on before we, get, we jump in the text. So today, how it's going to work is we're going to go through a lot of scriptures, okay? I'm going to have them all up on the slides as a cheat sheet, so don't worry. You're not going to have to be flipping back and forth real fast. But they're all going to be on the screens back behind us. But as we go through these texts, we have to come to two fundamental agreements. First, God's word is God-breathed. Therefore, it is internally consistent. The scriptures are not going to contradict themselves. So if we see something that seemingly contradicts itself, we have to ask more questions. Agreed? Second, we are reading someone else's mail. And this is one of the most important things followers of Jesus don't understand about the biblical scriptures. They think this was written to you. Newsflash, it wasn't, right? 
It wasn't written to you. There was a context, there was a people, there was a specific thing that is being addressed specifically in the New Testament as well. So we are not the audience. I want you to imagine someone got a transcript of all the text messages you've sent your family and friends this week and tried to compile your theology, your idea, all that stuff off those text messages, right? Some of those things you wouldn't be so happy about, other things, right? You'd have some different feelings about that. But what we have to realize is there's a context, there's a way of communicating. And so we come to the scriptures, there's a way that we could communicate now. So imagine there's a transcript of your, of your life, and someone has been transcripting all the things that you said, and you tell your friend, we, that's crazy, or you're all local, or whatever, right? Now imagine someone 2,000 years reading that. What does this mean? What are these words that they use? What is we, you know? They wouldn't understand, right? So there's a context. There's things happening. There's things we've got to dig into to understand what are the nuances, what are the ways this word was used, etc., etc. So we're going to be doing a lot of theological work today. But those are the first two rules. It's God, God's word is God-breathed and internally consistent, and we are reading someone else's mail. Now, there's more rules to hermeneutics, but for today's conversation, those are the ones I want you to keep in the back of my mind, in your mind as we go through these texts together. Let's start in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. We see this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be, fruit, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. The first thing we see, and I have portions highlighted for specific reference for you to look at, is that we see that the men, both men and women, are representatives of God's image. Both men and women are created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. They both represent who God is to the world. We are his image bearers in this world, both men and women, not just men, not just women, both genders represent God's image to the world. Male and female, he created them. Gender and gender distinctions are woven into the fabric of creation. Both genders carry and bear the image of God equally. Notice then that God gives them a charge, a command to first be fruitful and multiply, which means, as you all know, have some babies. And second... Second is to rule and subdue the earth. This has idea of kings and queens overlooking and overseeing their kingdom, right? Rule and subdue. So God gives Adam and Eve creation, both men and women creation, to then rule and reign with God over, to bring out new life, to have dominion over it, to cultivate, to create, to make something beautiful out of what God has given them. God has given them the raw materials of earth, and it's up to Adam and Eve to cultivate that raw materials and to create something beautiful, partnering with God. Together, both of the genders are to do this. Genesis 2 says this, the Lord God took the, man out of, uh, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are, to, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the, to the man to see what he would name them. And whenever he called the living creatures, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. The first thing I want us to draw our attention to is the idea, it is not good for man to be alone. And the men in this house, when their wives are out, say amen, right? 
we realize that's a reality. But even in the, in the way that God had set up creation, it is not good for man to be alone, meaning man by himself was not able to fulfill the calling that God had placed over him to subdue and rule creation. He needed a helper suitable for him. Now, before we uh, go a little bit further, I want to have a conversation around this idea of this word help. So when he says the word helper, he does not mean, you know, someone to do the dishes or the laundry or, you know, help pick up the slack around the house. You know, babe, I'm busy at work. I need you to do the... That's not the word here used. The word here used is azer. And this doesn't mean help with the dishes. It means help. Like, help me. You are in a moment of crisis. You're in a moment of need. And you scream help. That's the word azer. Now, it's typically, used, uh, it's typically used of God, and we'll talk about that moment, but the other times it is used is it's a military term, meaning you're getting your butt kicked, and you're calling your reinforcements for help. Hurry, help. You know, you're just screeched for help. That is the idea of Azer. It is also, and most often used of God, when Israel's in trouble, they cry, Azer, help. Come help us, Lord. Come intercede. Come fight our enemies. Help, help, help. And so God assigns this idea of help to the woman. That man is in desperate crisis without his counterpart, the one who is like him but different, to come alongside him and help fulfill the calling before him. Now the idea suitable is the word, it's the word connecto. And this has the idea but same but different. So she comes, out, out of, she comes alongside him. She is from his side. They are the same, but they're different. That's the idea of connecto, the same, but different. And so he needs a help who's the same, but different, who is like him, but opposite, who is the same kind, but a different version. And so, so God creates Eve. Adam wakes up, sees God, has rained down some blessings, you know, and he creates the first love song ever. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are like me. He says, I will call, I am, he says, I, uh, you will be called woman because you were taken out of man. The idea here in Hebrew, Hebrew is, I will call you Isha because you were taken out of Ish. Now, so the word Adam means earthling. It means out of the ground. And the opposite of Adam is not Eve. It's Adama, which means earth. So uh, Adam is earthling, Adama is earth. So it wouldn't make sense for, her to call, for him to say, I am Adam, you are Adama. You know, I am Adam, you are earth? That doesn't make much sense, right? And it's not, another word that, he, uh, that uh, is used often is, is zakur and neguva, which basically has like the biological male and female connotations like used with animals. He doesn't say that, but he gives them new names. Man, woman, ish, isha. There's now these two that are now becoming one, these two that are like but different. And the biblical author goes into the poetry. This is why when a man leaves his father and mother, he becomes united with his wife. Now, the word united is not the best translation, to be honest with you. The, the word here is debak, which means to cling to. So imagine hold on with white knuckles to, the cling to. That when you find something, you hold on to it, right? When you're at lunch today and there's the last serving food, you cling to it. You grab it. You hold on to it, right? And no one's going to snatch it out of your hands. That idea of cling to is, this idea of, is the idea of united. So when a, man, when a man becomes married to his wife, he clings to her. He's united to her. Other, other places this is used in scripture is used of people clinging to God, holding on to him. And so this is the, 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 the idea of two people who are opposite who now cling together in marriage, who now become one together in marriage. Now like all of you, we wish this is where the story ended. And we were still in the garden and all the things. But we know this is not the case. As the, as the, uh, the, part, as the, as the story in Genesis goes, uh, Adam and Eve, are or Eve is deceived by the serpent and her and Adam sin against God and partaking of the tree that they were specifically told not to. Now we're going to come back to that story later. So I want you to keep that tucked in the back of your mind. But I want us to notice first here at Genesis 3.16 where it says this. To the woman, and this is God edicting curses out because of the, the reality that they wanted to sin and disobey God. So this Genesis 3.16, it says, To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And the moms who have had babies say, Amen. Right? With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
What a strange thing. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, the question that we have to ask here in this passage is, is this passage prescriptive or descriptive? Meaning, is this how God intended, wanted it to be, or is this how it is because of sin? Now, God blessed Adam and Eve in the beginning. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. His intention was not that childbearing would cause pain. If the calling that they were supposed to do was to have lots of babies, that was the goal. He's Adam's curse is that he would toil and work in the ground and the ground would work against him. He was called to cultivate the ground and create something out of the ground. And so the very things that were once a blessing have now become a curse, a hindrance because sin has been brought into the world. What was meant to be easy or light has now become difficult or hard because of what sin has done in the world. So that... These two who used to cling together, now there's animosity. The idea of your desire will be for your husband, it's only used two other times. Once in Genesis 4-7, where it talks about um, uh, sin is crouching at the door of uh, Cain, and it's looking to pounce on him. It has the desire to overcome him there, and also in Song of Solomon, where the guy is thinking about his girl, and he misses her so much, and they're far apart, and he's longing for the beloved, and his desire is for her. That's the only time this is ever used in scriptures. So biblical scholars debate on which one should be used here. I tend to lean towards the latter half of things, that her desire is for relationship, it's for clinging, it's for longing to be together, but what will happen? He will rule over you. There is now this power struggle between the genders where once they were supposed to work and complement each other and help each other out and both be working together side by side now becomes a power struggle and we see this in relationship dynamics all the time and so that is the that is the, the framework in which we begin this conversation now I want us to go through a biblical survey of women in the scriptures, what they were doing, and ask ourselves the question, what does that mean for us now today? You ready? Round two. Stretch it out, guys. We're making it through. We're making it through, all right? Old Testament. Let's first talk about Miriam. Exodus 15, 20 through 21 says this. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her. And with timbrels and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. So this is right after the children of Israel have gone to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea collapsed back. And Moses said, you know, let my people go. You know, the staff, the whole thing. You've seen the Ten Commandments. You know what I'm talking about. So they go through the river. They come out, and this is what Miriam does. Now notice what it gives Miriam a title. What's her title? The prophet. What is a prophet biblically? Biblically speaking, a prophet is one who hears from God, hears God's word, and proclaims it to people. They are prophesying over people. So here already in the Exodus story, we have a woman functioning in the role of a prophet. Later on, her and Moses get at odds with each other. They're disagreeing about how things are being ran. And one of the arguments she brings to Moses is, well, God speaks to me too. And so they have this kind of a hard conversation. Unfortunately, she was in the wrong, right? And God had to let her know that she was in the wrong. But he never disputed that he spoke through her. And that's important to understand. The next thing is that she's leading the people in worship. I have no idea what a timbrel is. But whatever it is, it got the people going, and she leads the people at this moment of breakthrough to come to worship the Lord. Now, here's an important thing you must understand about leading worship. Leading worship is not just singing the songs before the service. You are proclaiming truth and reality over people, and when you're asking them to sing those things, it is becoming a real part of their life and proclaiming truth into God's world. So that is a great authority and responsibility. So there are people who say, oh, women can lead worship but nothing else, have very poor theology around worship then because they are proclaiming theological realities over a people. When she comes and says, hey, let's gather, let's sing, let's sing this truth, sing to God because he's exalted and horse and driver, he's hurled in the sea. God is powerful, he's mighty, he's delivered us. She's singing a theological reality over the people, Okay. Next person, Deborah. Now, Deborah is a straight gangster, okay? She's one of my favorite in the scriptures. Judges 4 says this. Now, Deborah, a what? Prophet, the wife of, I don't even know, Lepidoth, uh, Lapidoth, sorry, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah, she's got her own tree, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinanam, 
from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali, Zebulun, and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go with you. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. So it's important to understand where we are on the timeline. This is before there are kings in Israel where God raises up judges. This is what the whole book of Judges is about, as these people who are raised up. Now God is leading the people, but the judges are the one dealing with the disputes. So how it would work is if somebody stole a donkey from you, you would go to your tribal people, and the tribal people would weigh on the matter. If it was too complicated for them, too many things, it would kind of go up, go up, all the way up till you reach the judge. Now the judge, whatever they said, they're the final word, and they're the leader, they're the commander over all Israel. Notice it says that of her she was leading Israel at the time the judges were functioning in the role of a king but not being king God was still leading the people and so Deborah a woman is functioning this role notice what it also says about her she is also what a prophet speaks God's word and so one of her military commander comes to her with a question about what they're to do and so she gives him a charge here's what we're going to do here's how we're going to do it and notice what Brock says he's like look I ain't going without you you're going to have to come with me. Uh-uh, I'm not going to go fight these dudes without you. You need to come. And she says, let you, let you know, if I go, the honor is going to be taken away from you. They're going to say, a woman killed all these dudes. And he's like, take it. Let's go, you know? And so there's all kinds of crazy stories of Deborah. She does some crazy things, right? But we see here a woman leading, a woman prophesying, a woman in a commanding role over all of Israel. Next, I want to talk about is Huldah. She was a prophet, 2 Kings 22. This is a long one, and for sake of time, we're not going to go through this one in too much in depth, but King Josiah is a king at a time. He has some inquiries about what he's supposed to do, so he sends his priest to this woman, Huldah, who then prophesies, who hears from God, and speaks to Josiah what he's to do. Notice I highlight the end of the verse where it says, and they took the answer back to the king. So there's this conversation happening about what they should do. She gives some prophetic words about what's going to happen, how it's going to take place, which all comes true, and then she says, take this back to the king. That information is given to Josiah for him to make a decision with. Now, understand, there were multiple prophets at the time. He didn't have to choose Huldah, but he wanted to. Josiah was one of the only kings in all of Israel's history who listened to God and who heard from him. And he consults a woman prophet here in 2 Kings 22. If you want to know more about it, be my guest. Go check it out. The next one I want to talk about is Esther. Now, Esther has to be one of my top favorite books of all time. What's interesting about the book of Esther is God's actually not mentioned in it once at all. But you see the hand of God over the entire thing. Here's what you need to know. Esther was an orphan adopted by her uncle living in the Persian Empire. The Persian king was drunk and crazy, banished his wife. It's kind of a long story. Esther one. Got to read it if you want to know what I'm talking about. Banishes his wife and says, you know what I want to do? I want a new wife. You know what that means? Pageant show, baby. We're going to get all these women who are going to come dress for themselves. And so all these women come and they got all these tricks and juggling and singing and doing all these things for the king. They're wearing their Gucci, Louis Vuitton, like trying to impress the king. Esther does not go that route. She stays humble. She stays the way that she basically is. And everyone's all worried, like, Esther, you should really, you know, put some makeup on, do something. And she's like, no, he don't like it. He don't like it. This is where we're, doing, where we're dealing with. And the king sees her, and the, the scripture says the Lord gives him favor, gives her favor. And he chooses her out of all these women to be the queen. This orphan girl goes from being an orphan to being a queen in a matter of moments, all because of this crazy thing. She comes into power, and she hears of, of a plot being done to murder, a genocide, all her people. Now her king, the king that she's married to, is a hot mess. He's drunk all the time. He doesn't know what's going on. He has a super bad anger problem, so it is volatile. Walking on eggshells is an understatement. And so there's this moment where this plot comes forward, and she's stuck in this place of, I've been given this position of power, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to do it. So her uncle Mordecai speaks to her, and this is the passage that I'm talking about here. Esther 4, this is what Mordecai says. He tells Esther, if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, 
Gather all the Jews, all those who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast also. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, if I perish, a.k.a. if I die, I die. So Mordecai went away and carried out Esther's instructions. Notice, Esther is being used by God here to intercede on behalf of the people, to stop genocide from taking place. And what she says goes. She tells everybody, it's time to fast and pray. I'm calling for all the people to fast and pray because I could possibly lose my life and this plan go through. So this is our Hail Mary last chance attempt. And the plan succeeds. She convinces the king not to go through with the edict and God's people are put in a prosperous situation because of it. The whole thing is flipped upside down because of what takes place here. You want to know more? Go read the story. Let's talk New Testament. I want to first talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, and Anna. So, the Gospel of Luke, chapter, chapters 1 through 2, are all leading up to Jesus' birth. And in each one of these women, they prophesy about the Lord's birth to come. Mary, when she receives the word that she's going to be pregnant. Elizabeth, when, who is Mary's cousin, when they see each other, Elizabeth realizes that she's pregnant with the Lord Jesus and says, how am I so blessed that you would come here and be with me and keep carrying Jesus? And then Anna, who's, we get a brief story about her when she sees Jesus prophesies over him as well. We see these three women at the birth of Jesus prophesying. Again, you want to know more of this? Luke chapters 1 through 2. Read it for yourself. The next one I talk, want to talk about is Mary at Bethany. Luke chapter 10 says this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet to what he said, and listened to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Now, typically... When this passage comes up, it's a passage about don't get busy with distractions, worship the Lord, which there's good biblical truth to that. But it was uncommon for a woman to be a disciple of a rabbi. Not only uncommon, extremely rare, basically impossible. Now, this idea of sitting at a teacher's feet, Jewish tables were not like our tables. So she wasn't like the lap dog sitting at the feet at the table. They were all reclined, laying on the side of the table. was a little bit up like a coffee table. You would have pillows under your side. You would all sit on your side, and you would eat with one hand like that. It's interesting. It, it was what it was. So to sit, at his, to sit at his feet wasn't like a literal thing where she was sitting at her feet. She could have possibly been there. We know she washed his feet. But to sit at a rabbi's feet was a common phrase to mean being their disciple. To sit at the feet of a teacher means you were their disciple. So here is Mary in the room of a bunch of men sitting there saying, I got to see the table. I want to hear what he has to say too. And this is why most Bible scholars believe Martha gets so upset. Not just because she has work to do. She has a good justification, like, girl, we got dinner to cook. But second of all, because Mary was taking, in her mind, an inappropriate place. That she was taking that role of a disciple. And Jesus says, no, no, no. She's Indeed, only one thing matters, and she chose it. Now, was it not important for them to eat? Of course it was, but it was more important for Mary to hear the words of her rabbi. This is Jesus flipping the, the, the paradigm of its time on its head and saying, women are allowed to be my disciples, to come and to hear from me. The next thing I want to talk about is the women at the tomb. Pop quiz. Oh, I just ruined it. Who are the first people at the tomb on Easter? Women. women. Gosh, I just ruined that. All right. You get a freebie. There'll be more. So... Celebrated Easter, Bible trivia, who was the first people to see Jesus risen? It was men. No, it was women. Specifically, Mary Magdalene, and they say the other Mary. Which poor the other Mary? That's the name that she gets. Mary Magdalene gets Mary Magdalene. You get the other Mary. I hope somewhere I'm not the other Andrew, but. So the women come to the tomb, okay? They see that Jesus has risen. And uh, let's read Matthew 28. It says, so the women hurried away from the tomb. They said he's not there. The angels say, he ain't here. He's gone. So they book it to go tell, and then they run into Jesus. It says this, afraid yet filled with joy, they ran to tell the disciples. And suddenly Jesus came to them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. 
Go and what? Tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There, there they will see me. A little bit of brief story on Mary Magdalene. She's a little bit of a rough past. She had seven demons in her that were cast out. That's her story. In this Jesus' time, in a court of law, a woman's witness would not hold up. So if a woman saw somebody get murdered and was the only one there, her witness, would, her testimony would not count in a court of law. Notice who Jesus chooses to proclaim his message first. It is these women. And it is somebody like Mary Magdalene who becomes the first preacher of his message because that's what preaching is. It is proclaiming. It is going and telling. Do all the lexicon work you want to do. Preaching is going and telling. And the first heralds of the gospel are the women at the tomb, proclaiming he has risen. And when they come to the disciples, they say, Jesus is alive. Remember, Jesus said, in three days I'm going to the tomb, in three days I'm risen. The girls come and say, oh my gosh, he's risen. They're like, nah, we don't believe you. And they go race to the tomb to see for themselves. They do not believe the testimony of the women. But it's the women who Jesus appears to first and commissions first to go and to share this message. And so we move to the New Testament. I want to talk about Priscilla. Acts 18, meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and spoke with great, with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he, he was vigorously refuted by his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So, if you've read through the New Testament, you've seen Priscilla and Aquila often. They were Paul's like go-to couple in terms of discipleship and church planning. And so Priscilla and Aquila started at Corinth, which was a major city and a big area where Paul spent a lot of time planting that church. They were his right-hand people who, when he left, were in charge of running the church while he was gone. You see this in all sorts of different areas in Paul's other letters. He writes to Priscilla and Aquila. And after that, after their stint in Corinth, Paul commissions them to Rome, and then he commissions them to Ephesus to go and to help kind of put out fires and help deal with some leadership issues that are going on. Now, what's interesting Aquila is the male, Priscilla is the female. And notice, anytime that they're mentioned, their names are reversed. Priscilla's coming first. Now, this wasn't just a typo. It wasn't an accident. This was with intentionality. Because in that relational dynamic, Priscilla was the one primarily doing the discipleship, primarily doing the work of teaching and instructing. And so we see Paul commission them two as a couple together to go and to help plant these churches. But we see that Priscilla is mentioned first. And she is the one primarily with the role of discipleship there. The next one I want to talk about is Phoebe. Romans 16, Paul says this, I commend, you, I commend to, you, to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Concray. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way that's worthy of his people and to give up any help that she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. So Paul is writing the letter to the Romans from prison. Now how did letters work in Paul's day? Did you send it via UPS or USPS? No, you sent it with somebody carrying the message. Now, here was the responsibility of someone carrying the message. It wasn't like a bike boy in New York who just drops it off and hopes to get it, right? Not like the newspaper boy who just chucks it and says, good luck. The messenger had to know the message. They had to be able to explain the message, specifically in the early church. Phoebe is the carrier of this message. Paul sends her to the church in Rome to not only read his message because many people were illiterate. So it's not like everyone just made copies at the copy machine and everyone got their own piece. Somebody had to go up there and read it. Have you read Romans? It's a little challenging, to say the least, for Western Americans who are all literate, hopefully went to school and stuff, right? Now imagine in their day, and every time you read through a book, you have a million questions too. Uh, excuse me, what the heck did you mean by this? And why did Paul say that? And how come this happened there? Phoebe had to be instructed to answer those questions. 
had to be trained and taught Paul's letter, Paul's theology to be able to explain to people in Rome what Paul meant, what his heart was, what was his intention, and be able to expound on some more questions and ideas that they had. And so Phoebe is specifically given the title of deacon. Now there's all sorts of people who use this as a saying and say Paul didn't mean a title, he just meant a servant, and there's conversation to be happened there. But specific, specifically with her being the one who's carrying the message and had to be explained it, we see her functioning in the role of a teacher teaching the people in Rome about uh, Paul's heart there in Romans. And what a great task to be responsible for teaching Romans for the first time, right? The next one I want to talk about is Junia. Romans 16, 7, it says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions about this one. The first is around the name, Junia. Some people say it's supposed to be Junius, which is the male version. But no serious scholar in Greek or otherwise thinks that's the case. It is just people who want to cling to their continued vision of who this person is supposed to be so they could justify what's said about her, which is saying she's outstanding among the apostles. Now, there is good conversation to be had here. Now, does it mean that she is outstanding among the apostles and that she is an apostle and outstanding among them? Or is she outstanding among the apostles? Mean among the apostles, they say Junia is the bomb.com. She's outstanding. She's great. There's conversation to be happening there, and there's not more context there. This is the end of Paul's letter that he's just writing to. So either way, she's seen as a leader and legit. And Paul says she was in the faith before I was. She was following before I was. She kind of has that spiritual authority before me because she was there before I was. Now, there are so many other women I don't have time for. Tabitha, Lydia, Perseus, Rufus's mom, right? So imagine you remember it as that. Eudia, Syntyche, uh, Aphia, Chloe, and so many more in the New Testament that talk about women. Now, the moment you've been waiting for, the controversial passages. Let's talk 1 Corinthians 11. So it says this, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Everyone who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well cut her hair off, but if it is a disgrace to have a woman cut her hair off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man not ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For, it did not come from, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her, a woman to have, uh, that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, it is not in the, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. I know what you're thinking, huh? right? There's so many things you're asking there. Do I shave my head? Is long hair bad? What's going on? So, there was a, remember our rules. One is what? Scripture is God-breathed, therefore it's what? Internally consistent. Two is that we're reading somebody else's mail. We're reading mail from 2,000 years ago. It's going to sound strange to you at times. There's going to be things that Paul's specifically addressing. Head coverings, hair, all that stuff for us is not a reality in our world. So Paul is specifically addressing something. Second, if you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was a hot mess in a million different places. Paul's whole letter is correcting all these things. Examples, dude, you can't sleep with your stepmom. Stop getting drunk at communion. If it's causing people to stumble to eat the, the meat sacrificed to Zeus, don't do it. There are specific things that he's addressing here, okay? And so some people take this text and say, we have to take it literally, meaning as it's read. And that causes all sorts of problems. That's not how you are to do proper hermeneutics. You have to understand what is Paul saying, why is he saying it, and what's the underlying principle. So there's a lot of confusion here about head coverings, etc., whatever. Here's what you need to know. In Paul's day... A woman's hair was seen as her glory. It was a part of like what made her beautiful. It was like something special. And that they believed was reserved specifically for her husband to be able to enjoy was the glory of her hair. Strange, I know, but it was a part of their culture. Okay? And it's still a part of a lot of cultures. If you look east of us, a lot of women's hairs and heads are still covered because they believe that to still be a reality, that that is only meant to be seen by the husband, right? And so Paul is trying to navigate 
evangelism, how this church is supposed to be, and also not be offensive or not be aggressive towards the culture that he's around. So he's saying this, you guys have new freedom in Christ, and it's amazing. He says, but we still have to be mindful and respectful of the cultures that we're in to not disrespect anybody. If we were going to send anybody here out to the Middle East, I would tell you to wear a head covering, right? And you might push back and be like, I'm a grown woman, you know, I can't wear my hair. I'm telling you, you could get in a lot of danger. You could get really hurt. You could get killed if you don't do this. So we have to be mindful of the cultures that we're going into, right? And so that would be something that, that would be encouragement that we give. And this is one of the things that Paul's navigating. Now, one of the big arguments that they say here is, okay, we could have that conversation about head coverings, but it says here that uh, Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and, and God is the head of Christ, but there you have a problem. So that word uh, head either means two things. It either means source or it means authority. So if it means authority, Christ is the head of man. We'd say, yeah, that's fire. God is the authority. You have man as the authority of women, which some people believe that reality. But then you have one that says, and God has authority over Jesus. Now that doctrine is what's called eternal subjugation of the son which has been denounced as heresy because it tears apart the Trinitarian belief and it makes, it makes the Father more supreme than the Son and then the Spirit, which is not, that's heresy, that's false teaching. So if you're going to stick with that thing, you have to be comfortable with that reality. Let's see what it means if it means source. If it is, uh, Christ is the source of man, we could say that that would be for sure, for sure true. Man is the source of woman. Where did God pull the rib from Adam? Right, he pulled it from his rib in the garden, so she's the, so from him the source, right? And that uh, God is the source from which Christ came, right? The Father sends the Son. If it's source, then that makes more sense. And so there's a lot of conversation to be had there, but the main thrust of what Paul's trying to say is this when be believers come to a gathering, we have to understand that the glory is meant to go to God and God alone. What was happening in the Corinth community is fashion show, elaborate hairstyles, like, girl, you check out my weave. You know, they're going all crazy, trying to compete with one another and drawing glory onto themselves, wearing things that would specifically draw attention. And Paul's like, stop it. None of that. We're not doing that. Cover your heads for all I care. Now notice, the instructions that he's giving here in 1 Corinthians 11 are specifically for when an individual is functioning in the role of prophesying. When they're at the front of the church and they're proclaiming prophetic words to wear head coverings, to not wear head coverings, that's the whole context in which he's speaking to here. He's saying when men and women are functioning in the role of prophecy, this is how they are to conduct themselves. Guys, don't cut your hair, women, whatever. Or guys, cut your hair, don't have long hair, whatever the instructions were, right? So there's a lot more to be had there. We don't have time. We could have further conversations later. The next one I want to jump to is 1 Corinthians 14. It says this, What shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church must be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time. Someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you all can prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but to be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If any one of you thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that I am writing to you. It is the Lord's commandment. But if anyone ignores this, they will by themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in fitting and orderly way. There's a lot, I know. Paul, I just read it. I'm a little out of breath. Paul is talking about order in the Christian community. What's happening in Corinth, what Paul's writing to, is pandemonium. Everyone wants to talk. Everyone wants to share. And imagine in a setting like this where everyone's just talking and sharing. I felt like the Lord told me this. Well, I felt like the Lord told me that. And everyone's talking. And Paul says, no, 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 no. 
two or three, one at a time. So not 17 people have a tongue tonight, three people or two people. And they each speak. And then everybody at the church weighs what is being said so they know it's legit or not. We can have more conversations about this when we talk spiritual gifts. But that's what he's saying. There's order here. It's not chaos. Not everyone's just babbling. Not everyone's just screaming out loud. There's words that they believe God's given. The people weigh it. We consider what's being said. We say, ah, that's legit. Or that's not legit. We have conversations about it. We move on, whatever. He's saying there's order. Then he's specific. It seems like he just changes gears and is like, women are to be silent. What is he talking about there? So that idea, that word woman could be translated both woman or wife. Now what a lot of Bible scholars believe that was happening here was disgruntlement between marriages. So like, imagine what's happening here is a husband is up here sharing a word like, guys, I really feel like God's calling us to be like more generous and more kind. And the wife of that man stood up and was like, oh, you want to talk about generous and kind? You weren't kind last week? Well, no, 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 right? And it's like all this drama. Paul is writing to specific women in a specific circumstance and something's happening here. How do we know this? Because three chapters before, he's given the women instructions on how to prophesy in the church. So obviously he doesn't mean for them to never speak at all. He's telling these women, you must be silent. He says, if there's a dispute between you and your husband, do it at the house. He says, don't do it in the middle of the church gathering where it's like, well, it must be nice, Ned, to do whatever you want. You know, it's like there's this dispute happening. And it's like, no, none of that. If there's a dispute, if you have questions, if you don't agree with, then talk about it in your home. Don't bring it out here when this is supposed to be a place of order. Now, the beginning, the middle, the end, and all throughout Paul, through it, Paul's talking about order, 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 so that there's not confusion. So it's not chaos. He says, because the purpose of doing anything is the building up of everybody. And so everybody can be encouraged and helped and instructed. So if everyone's talking, everyone's babbling, nobody's getting edified. Nobody's getting blessed. So Paul says, time out. Two or three of you at a time, but one at a time. Don't be having disputes, arguments, this, that, whatever. He says, if there's questions to be asked, ask those at the home, etc. But there is obviously some sort of dispute happening here between wives and their husbands and words being said and so he's saying let's not have that here the whole thing is about order there's no other way around it and if paul is saying here in first corinthians 14 a woman's never to speak he just contradicted himself in 11 and at the start of the verse when he says when each of you has a word a tongue a word of revelation whatever he just contradicted himself again so either paul is out of his mind or there's something else happening here now the apex, the greatest of them all, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2 says this, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with de decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman deceived and became a sinner. But the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. All right, you guys. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next time. Good luck with that one. No. So, the strongest proponent of women not leading in any form or fashion or not speaking or not teaching is this passage here. And if you were to tell anybody that you carry this condition, this is the first thing they're going to do. Well, what do you do with 1 Timothy 2? What do you do with that? It's clear as day. It's clear as day. And they have that understanding of reading the text at face value. But I ask those people to then be consistent. If that's the manner in which you're going to approach the scriptures, be consistent. Right? So when he says women aren't allowed to braid their hair or wear gold, be consistent. Your wife better not come in with braids, bro. If you're going to tell me 1 Corinthians 2, that's what it says. I better not hear for an anniversary you got her a gold bracelet. Uh-uh-uh. No, 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 dude. And also saying here that when men pray, they're to lift up their hands. Bro, anytime you're praying, I better see those hands in the air. Right? You better be lifting up holy hands to the Lord, right? Whenever you're praying. Right? What is Paul saying here? He's obviously not being literal to the point of the text says what it says, you know. And some people take that to that extreme, but that's not at all what Paul's saying here. First, remember our rules. Scripture is God breathed, therefore it's internally consistent. And secondly, what are we doing? We're reading what? Somebody else's mail. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring, and there's a lot of things going on. The whole purpose of 1 Timothy is correcting heresy. He begins the passage, he begins 1 Timothy 1, correcting the heresy where there's these debates about genealogies, etc. So the whole purpose of the letter, Paul's saying is, we got to fix heresy, bro. You can't allow poor doctrine to be taking place.
Now, historical context. Ephesus was the, uh, they had the, the, the temple to Aphrodite, which was like this major wonder of the world where people would come and they would have sex with prostitutes in that temple. It was crazy. It was a whole thing. But women there were seen as the spiritual authority. It was a Greek culture. Okay, so it wasn't like the Jewish people. It wasn't like the Roman people who women were subjugated. Greek people were wealthy. They could uh, move up in classes, etc., etc., and they were at the core of the religious worship at the time. That's what's happening in Ephesus context-wise. And so what, what most Bible scholars believe, and I agree with them, is that Paul is addressing some sort of Gnostic heresy, meaning that uh, because Eve received more wisdom when she took of the apple first, that she was better than men, etc. There's something happening here in the church where there's heresy going on, and women are propagating the heresy. And that's what Paul is specifically addressing here. But the first thing he addresses is with men arguing. He says, men, I don't want you to have these angry disputes. Instead, you need to learn how to pray. Instead of fighting, instead of yelling, instead of arguing, you need to both learn how to pray. And he says, women, and he wants to speak to them about how they dress, a similar issue what's happening in Corinth. So remember, there's all sorts of different socioeconomic classes. And so women are coming in wearing their Gucci handbags, all this kind of crazy stuff, and then we got our Walmart faithfuls coming through, and, you know, we got hand-me-down, whatever. We got all these different spectrums of people from all these different walks of life, and these women who are incredibly wealthy are really alienating the other women in the church. Because they're able to go these elaborate things. There's also pagan ties to those things. There's a lot of different things happening here. So Paul says, look guys, when we come to the church, it's not about how you dress. So let's not make it about that. Dress modestly. Don't be trying to attack that kind of attention to yourself. Don't be trying to get you, uh, you know, a husband today. None of that. You're coming here because you want to give glory to God. You want to worship him. You want to meet with him. That's what this gathering is about. It's not about anything else. He's like, so men, stop arguing. Women, dress reasonably. No, it's not a fashion show. It's not a time to compete with each other. Just wear regular clothes like regular people, okay? Then he says that a woman should learn. Now, this is so important. Again, this is already countercultural to where it's, what's happening here. He's encouraging women to sit under the teaching so that they could learn. He says a woman should learn. But he says, and the manner in which they should learn should be in quietness and full submission to who? To everybody? To any man? Or to specifically the teacher who is teaching and instructing the people there. What was taking place, most Bible scholars believe, is that women were just overtaking authority. This is why Paul says that they would assume authority. Now, the interesting thing about this word authority is this is the only time in all the scriptures this word is ever used. There is all sorts of different opportunities that Paul uses as authority when he talks about family dynamics, when he talks about uh, businesses, when he talks about the Lord having authority. There's over like 47 words, Paul, 46 words Paul could have chose from to use, describe that kind of authority. But he chooses a different word, and this is the only time that it's used. And it has this idea of equipping oneself quickly. Like if you were to get ready, like if you're a firefighter and you got called to a fire, how quickly you'd put on your clothes, you would, you would, you would assume those clothes onto yourself, you'd assume that authority, you'd assume that position. It has the same thing of armor, it has that idea of quickly equipping yourself, quickly grasping for control, quickly going for something, is the idea that that word has here. So Paul says, I do not permit a woman to go and grasp for control, grasp for authority, grasp for power, without first having what? Learned. Learn the scriptures. Become equipped. Now, if men had been doing this, Paul would have said, I do not permit a man to assume authority. Because what was happening is they were trying to overthrow Timothy. They were trying to say, ah, Timothy, thanks, bud. You're doing a good job, but we're going to take it from here. Tim was a young leader. That's why Paul tells him, stir the flame, a flame that was gifted in you. This is, remember the words that we prophesied you. He's kind of trying to give him strength to his bones because Timothy's kind of getting bullied by these people in Ephesus. So Paul's trying to really strengthen him to say, man, hold your ground. We can't allow heresy to be taking place. We, that's why he tells Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. And so there's these instructions to Timothy to kind of strengthen up. But he's telling these women, look, I do not permit women, specific women in mind, to teach or assume authority. Meaning this, this grasping for knowledge. Now why does Paul say that? Notice what he says in Exodus' example. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Pause right there. Let's draw back to the Genesis narrative. Okay, let's come back to that moment. Was it because woman, well, because Eve was a woman, is that why she was deceived? Some Bible scholars hold that view. Saying, oh, women are most likely to be deceived. Have you been with a man at a grocery store? You know, it's, there's 75 different avocado ranches. There's, you know, me and my wife have the joke that, 
anytime she sends me to the store, she's going to get about 17 and a half phone calls. Do we have lemons? We got lemons? Okay. What kind of lemons did you want? There's half-cut lemons. There's lemon juice. You know, that's the whole thing, right? Now, why was Eve deceived? When we go back to the Genesis narrative, read it for yourselves. Adam was given the instructions not to partake of the tree. Eve was not. Eve came later in the story. Therefore, it is Adam's responsibility to do what? To teach Eve the rules of the garden. When the serpent comes, he asks Eve a question. He says, did God really say you can't eat of any of these trees in the garden? And she quotes back the rule. She says, actually, we can eat of the tree, just the one not of the one of the knowledge of good and evil. But then she adds this, but if we touch it, we will die. God didn't say that. He said, only if you eat it. So we already see a discrepancy in what Eve had learned. Now, the story we always get told is that Eve partook of the apple. And there's like vision in her mind that she like chopped it up in a salad and was like, oh, here, Adam, you want some apple? And he's like, oh, sure, you know. And then he's like, oh, you deceived me, woman. I did not know you planted this in my salad. No, that's not all what happened. You read the Genesis narrative. Who's there standing next to her watching her do this? Adam, it says, and he was with her. So there he's like, hey, babe, you talking to a snake? All right, have a good one. And just watching this all unfold. He was put as the protector of the garden, the instructor of God's word, and he allowed his wife to be deceived. He did not step in and say, no, 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 God didn't say that. He didn't say we couldn't touch it. He says we couldn't eat it. And get out of here, serpent, you know, like this is weird anyways. Why is there a talking snake? You know, what was in that salad or whatever, you know? And so he didn't do anything. He just stood by and watched deception overcome his wife. So Paul is saying what's happening in the church is deceptive teaching. Heresy is coming forward. And you're allowing that to come forward. So he's saying, I'm not, you have to learn. You have to understand. You have to know what's being taught. You can't just come up here and shoot from the hip. You have to be studied. You have to be equipped. So he's saying, for the time being, these women who are excited about teaching, great, awesome. You have to learn first. You got to know what you're talking about first. Because remember the garden narrative. When Eve was not properly instructed, sin came through the door. Now, the end of this passage is probably the most obscure, but he says this, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. So, women, you better have some babies, you know, whatever. No, of course, that's not what he's meaning. Some people take it to mean that, again, that's what people who read it literally and have all sorts of issues with their hermeneutics. What is Paul saying here? Paul's drawing right back to this story. Immediately after this, what is the curse that he gives the serpent? He said, from this woman will come a seed. She will bear a child. And from him, right, the whole, all the nations will be saved. But from him, the, he will crush the serpent's head and he will strike his heel. He's the promised one all the way through. And so even though deception had come in and had come in through Eve's life, right, salvation also came from her life, came from her womb, came from her line and so paul's saying there's redemption even in i know there's been some crazy things going around but listen look sisters sit and learn get underneath the text and look even though there's some bad things that happen look you are saved through the child that was born in jesus he says so continue in faith and love holiness i want you to be discouraged i don't want you to be banged up look i'm happy you're excited but time out you can't wing it you got to know what you're talking about now, I'm sure there's more that would be like to be talked about, but I've gone incredibly long. So I want to close now together with just this last thing, our teaching text, which is this, Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and what? Daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my sermons, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. For too long, we have silenced the voices of the incredible women who we stand on their shoulders. And there's a new wave of the opposite coming place where it's let's silence the men and women, let's take over, you know, there's both of these things are happening. But brothers and sisters, this is not the way it ought to be. We were made to work alongside each other, to fulfill the commission, to fill God's earth, to subdue it, and for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. 
We've gone through all the scriptures. We looked at all these women who've led. We've talked about God's design in Genesis. We've addressed these controversial passages. So here is my prayer today. Women, we need you. We need you. We need your voices. We need your strength. We need your courage. We need your love. We need your prayers. We need your gifts. We need everything that you can bring to the table because the task at hand is great. Our city has great need. There is much to be done in the world. And Mother's Day is not even a better day to remind ourselves of how influential and powerful and incredible women have been and are being and are continuing to be in our world and how desperately we need you. We need you in this church. We need your voice. We need your gifts. We need all that you can bring to the table because we can't fulfill the calling that God has for us in our city without you. And for so many, they've been told, you can't, you won't. You're not allowed. And to hear we want to say, let's dream together what God can do. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you've done here this morning. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.